Well, good morning. So we are in week three of a four-week series that we've called Villains. And in this series, what we're doing is we're looking at some things in Scripture that are described like villains. And so in week one, we, we started it off by looking at this villain that is inside each of us called the heart. The heart is described like a villain in Scripture. Jeremiah 17.9 says that the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. And then Jeremiah says, who can understand it? And then last week we looked at this untamable villain that has the potential for endless evil and it resides inside of all of our mouths called the tongue. In James 3.6 it says, The tongue also is a fire. It is a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole body, sets the whole course of one's life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. It's such a villain inside of us. So today we want to look at another evil villain But it's a villain that that many of us don't really want to admit is a problem in our lives. Or we deny its power in our lives. In fact, many of us, we we kind of see it as a good thing. How many of you guys have ever played the game Capture the Flag when you were younger? So kind of the point of the game is that you have have another team out there and you, you go and you're trying to get their flag, capture the flag, bring it back to your side. And so... A lot of times when when you're playing the game, there's people that are guarding the flag. And so you come up with a little strategy to get that flag from your opponent. Maybe you you get together with your team and you say, hey, we need to send out some people, some runners. And usually you pick the people who are maybe a a little bit slower and not so good at the game. And you send them out and they go to get the flag. And and all the people who are guarding the flag, they they get distracted by them. And so they, they try and get them. All the while, your speedsters, you send them in behind to try and go get the flag while there's less opposition. Well, I think sometimes in the church, we, we, we kind of do stuff like this. We send out runners as a distraction, meaning this, we want to yell about certain sins that we've decided are the really bad ones. We send those out and make sure that they're seen and they cause a distraction because they're the really bad ones because about 95% of Christians don't really struggle with those ones. And so that's why they're really bad. And then we, so we yell about these really bad sins. All the while, we tend to be a little bit more silent about the sins that are maybe more acceptable. The sins that, that more of us struggle with. The sins that don't seem quite as bad. And so we get distracted by the sin running around in other people's lives. All the while, there are these less obvious sins or more acceptable sins that are coming in and taking us down. Well, today I want to talk about one of the sneakiest villains around, one that is masked sometimes as something good, something ambitious, something worth pursuing, yet it has destroyed the faith of countless amounts of people. And it is the love of money. The love of money. And so I want to look at what the Apostle Paul Uh, wrote to a young minister named Timothy. This is someone he had invested in for years uh, in 1 Timothy 6. This is his first letter to Timothy. And uh, we're going to look as Paul wraps up his letter to Timothy, some final warnings that he gives him. Here's what he writes starting in verse 2. It says, These are the things you are to teach and insist on. He says, If anyone teaches otherwise and does not agree to the sound instruction of our Lord Jesus Christ and to godly teaching, they are conceited, And understand nothing. They have an unhealthy interest in controversies and quarrels about words that that they result in envy, strife, malicious talk, evil suspicions, and constant friction between people of corrupt mind who have been robbed of the truth and who think that godliness is a means to financial gain. 
So Paul is, is bringing his letter to Timothy to a close, and he brings up this subject of false teachers, uh, which is a theme that he had already talked about earlier in his letter. It's interesting, last week, uh, James brought up teachers before he led into a conversation about the tongue, and then here, Paul brings up teachers before he leads into a conversation about money. And as one who has been tasked with teaching God's word, this kind of makes my ears perk up and go, God, is there, is there something you're wanting me to hear here? God, is there something you want me to be aware of in my own life? Because Paul is talking about these teachers who are getting caught up in their own self-importance and the result is they lack real understanding. And so I've got to be careful that, that I don't get caught up in my own self-importance. There's, there's often a prayer that I pray before I get up to preach. In fact, I was just praying it a little bit ago. I was praying that, you know, God, let, let my words be your words. I don't want to speak something of my own, but I want to speak what you want me to speak. And then I'll pray, God, may I not be a distraction to what you want your people or myself even to hear. I don't want to get in the way of what you're wanting to say. Because there's a certain amount of trust that's been given to me to, to deliver a message. So I have to be cautious that I don't become conceited, that I don't preach from my opinion or try to sway people politically or bring up issues as a means of stirring up controversy or producing endless friction. Like the gospel is, is controversial enough. I don't need to be adding to it, right? So Paul talks about these false teachers and there are these teachers who are using godliness. They're, they're strutting their own piety, their own righteousness as a means to financial gain. It's the first century version of health and wealth prosperity gospel. They, they use their position and their words to advance themselves or advance their agenda and fill their wallets. And I'm sure we could all point to some TV evangelists that we see that use their pulpit and use their words as a way to exploit people for financial gain. You know, just a few years ago, there, there was uh, news articles coming in about this preacher that was asking his people to give sacrificially so that they could purchase, he could purchase a new $65 million private jet. I mean, that's just crazy. That's crazy. Like the one I'm looking at is only 58 million. 65 is just ridiculous. So, and the buckets are, oh, they took them already. Sorry. <laughs> uh, again, it's, it's easy though to point out sins in the lives of others. But we need to examine us too. And as Paul in his letter is, is coming to a, a close here, as he's talking to Timothy, he condemns the whoring of the gospel for financial gain. He says, this type of behavior will never lead to truth. But the matter of money is really a theme of its own. And it's more than just an issue for multimillionaire false preachers and teachers, right? We, we can deflect all we want. We can distract ourselves all we want. But even if you live in poverty, you can still struggle with greed, materialism, and the love of money. And so Paul is going to press into this theme Leading into verse 6, here's what he says, or going into verse 6. He writes this, But godliness with contentment is great gain. Although godliness should never be used as a means to secure financial gain, it is true that godliness, when it's coupled with contentment, is great gain. But he's not talking about financial gain, right? It's great gain. And the reason we should be content, verse 7 says, For we brought nothing into this world, and we can take nothing out. We can take nothing out of it. We came into this world with nothing, so whatever you've been given in this time in your life has just, it's been all gain, right? But you're not going to be able to take it when you leave. You're not going to be able to take it with you when you die. And then verse 8, but if we have food and clothing, we will be content 
with that. So contentment is a big deal here. And in our culture that preaches more, newer, shinier, better, it's hard to talk about being content with just the basics, isn't it? And Jesus knew that that we would struggle with this. This would be a big struggle for people. In fact, of Jesus' 38 parables, 16 of them, he used money and possessions as the primary application. We've talked about this before. If If we preached on money as much as Jesus did, then we would be preaching on money 22 Sundays out of the 52 Sunday year. A lot of people want to say that, that, oh, churches shouldn't talk about money. My goodness, Jesus did a whole lot. Oh, churches talk too much about money. Probably not as much as Jesus did. Why would he talk so much about money? Why so many warnings about money and possessions in the Bible? Well, it's because money is most often portrayed as God's chief competition. It's, It's what can take our hearts from him. It's not that money in and of itself is bad. It's not that money is a villain, but it is the love of money. Our our allegiance and our love goes to money and what it can buy us or what it can bring us rather than our allegiance and our love going to God. So Jesus said in Matthew 6.21, for where your treasure is, there your heart will also be. See where your money's going and and God says that's, that's where your heart is. Money talks, and how we use money and pursue money tells us where our hearts are. And so Paul then begins to tease out why the love of money is so villainous. He writes in verse 9, he says, Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. And so here's why the love of money is such a villain. Because the love of money is deceptive. It is deceptive. Paul says that those who try to get rich fall into temptation and into a trap. It is a trap. And haven't we all done stupid things to try and get rich, right? We've all done dumb things. I I posted on Facebook a couple weeks ago for some help for the sermon. I asked, what are some, some things, some traps that you've fallen into trying to get rich? And I think people were a little more hesitant to respond to this one, but there were a few replies. Like one person said he became a door-to-door salesman selling Cutco knives and then Kirby vacuums, and he said it was just horrible. <laughs> Another sold Mary Kay, and she said it wasn't really that bad until the district manager got mad because they didn't sell enough for her to get a, a, a $10,000 diamond brooch. She said, then things turned. <laughs> Several people talked about the money that they wasted playing the lottery. One person said, I sold scrapbook supplies. And then she said, to myself. (laughs) She said, what a grand endeavor that was. My favorite, this wasn't on Facebook, but my favorite is is a clip that I want to show you from the office where the regional manager, Michael Scott, tries to get rich quick and get others to join him. Check this out. Phil recruited me to sell these cards, and now I am recruiting you. Who is this guy again? Don't worry about Phil. He drives a Corvette. He is doing just fine. Okay. Calling cards are the wave of the future. These things sell themselves. Who uses calling cards anyway? You know what? That's a nice attitude, Ryan. I'm just helping you invest in your future, my friend. This sounds like a get-rich-quick scheme. Yes. Thank you. You will get rich quick. We all will. Didn't you lose a lot of money on that other investment, the one from the email? You know what, Toby? When the son of the deposed king of Nigeria emails you directly asking for help, you help. His father ran the freaking country, okay? All right, so raise your hand if you want to get rich. All right. No, um, how is this not a pyramid scheme? All right, let me explain. Again. <laughs> Phil. 
has recruited me and another guy. Now we are getting three people each. The more people that get involved, the more people who are investing, the more money we're all gonna make. It's not a pyramid scheme. It is a, it's not even a scheme per se. It's. I have to go make a call. <laughs> so why is it that the love of money is so deceptive? It's because it promises what it can't deliver. It goes back to what Paul was just talking about, contentment. Those seeking to get rich will never find contentment in that pursuit. Again, there will always be something newer, shinier, shinier, better, bigger, right? You will never be there. These things will never, ever, ever satisfy. Looking for satisfaction and contentment in stuff, in the pursuit of money, it, it's, like, it's like drinking ocean water to satisfy your thirst, right? It has such a high concentration of salt, the more you drink, the more thirsty you actually become. You're thinking, well, it's water. It's good for me, right? And, and so you drink it. And, and, and the more you do, though, the sooner you become dehydrated. If you keep drinking, you get headaches, dry mouth, low blood pressure, rapid heartbeat, and eventually become delirious and go unconscious. And if you don't go unconscious, but you keep drinking it, you could die. It's amazing because you see water and you think, this, this is what I want. This is what I need. However, as you drink it, unbeknownst to you, you're killing your own body. And that's what happens when we pursue money. It is a trap. Paul says that those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap. It is deceptive. A few years back, there was a survey that was done of, of wealthy U.S. citizens. And the question was asked, how much money do you need to live comfortably? How much money do you need to live comfortably? Those who had a net worth of over $1 million said that they needed $2.4 million to live comfortably. Those who had a net worth over $5 million said that they needed $10.4 million to live comfortably. And those who had a net worth over $10 million said they needed $18.1 million to live comfortably. Now, if I asked you the very same question, how much money do you need to live comfortably? I know what you, your answer would be. It'd be the same answer from everybody. And it's the same answer I would give. More. More. More than I currently have. More than I currently make. The love of money is deceptive. It always screams more. But not only is it deceptive, but the love of money is also destructive. Paul says that those who, who want to get rich, they fall into a trap. And they, do, they don't just do foolish things. He says they have harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. The love of money is dangerous. It leads you into harmful desires. It sets you down a path that is wrought with danger. I mean, let's just consider where materialism, this desire for things, can lead you. The list is long, and it could go on and on and on. I could list way more than this. Think about it. Selfishness, cheating, fraud, perjury, robbery, envy, quarreling, hatred, violence, murder. Murder has happened over the love of money. How many marital difficulties revolve around money? It's the number one factor. It is the number one factor in divorce. Pornography is driven by money. Blackmail, exploitation of the weak, oppression of the poor, immorality, injustice. The love of money is a breeding ground for thousands and thousands of other sins. I truly believe that most of us, if we were being honest with ourselves, 
we would have to admit that we love money. But are we foolish enough to think that we are immune then to the destructive results of it? But not only is it destructive to everything and everyone around us, it's worse than that. It has eternal ramifications. Listen to verse 10. It says, Paul writes, For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. So this passage is often misquoted. You've probably heard people say that money is the root of all evil. And that's not what this is saying. Paul makes it clear that it is the love of money that is a root of all kinds of evil. And he reminds Timothy that that there have been some who have wandered away from the faith because of their desire for more, for their desire for money. And so we see that the love of money is derailing. It is derailing. It can derail someone from faith. I mean, this is serious stuff, right? We're, We're talking about eternity here. And we know this from verse 10, but we also going back to verse 7. It's talking about how we brought nothing into this world. We can take nothing out of it. This, this love for things, this desire for more, this love for money can drown you forever, for all of eternity. It, it is not overdramatic for me to say that how you handle money will literally make or break you forever. It kills, it destroys, it derails for all of eternity. You put your heart into things, into stuff and possessions and wealth and it will destroy you. And the whole time you think you're okay. It is a villain that we have invited into our homes and asked to live with us. It is a root of all kinds of evil. So what do we do? Thankfully, Paul's not done He talks about instead of pursuing money, instead of pursuing more stuff, we should do something else. Here's what he writes in verse 11. But you, man of God, flee from all of this and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses. So this good confession he's talking about is Timothy's baptism that he made in in the presence of many witnesses. So why why do we fight, or how do we fight this fight against the love of money? Actually, we don't. We don't fight it. We don't stand up and go up against it. Paul says we run. We flee. This isn't a villain you want to go up against. This isn't a villain you want to invite into your home. This isn't a villain that you want to mess with. Because it is a trap. So you run. But you don't just run away, you run to something. He says, instead you pursue. Instead of pursuing money, you pursue something greater. Pursue righteousness and godliness and faith and love and endurance and gentleness. And then he says, fight the good fight. Not against the love of money, but fight the good fight in that you are willing to suffer for the gospel. That is a fight worth fighting. Not not doing it for financial gain. But the ultimate theme of this chapter is is contentment. That we are to be content in God. Be content in God. And those four words, that sounds like a great takeaway, right? Maybe it's something you write down and and you walk away with, maybe you put it on your mirror when you get home. That's great and easy for me to say. How do we get there? I mean, we, we, we cannot take our cues from culture here. Our culture lives in persistent discontent always wanting more and more and more, never satisfied. 
So how do we get there then? Well, let's, let's read how Paul wraps up his thoughts with some practical ways for us as we run from the love of money and find contentment in God. Let's go down to verse 17. He says this, Command those who are rich in this present world. Now, I'm going to hit pause here. No one likes for me to hit pause here because I just want to say when Paul says, command those who are rich in this present world, I don't want you to think of Jeff Bezos or Elon Musk or Bill Gates. When he's talking about people who are rich, he's talking about us. And I know, I know none of us think that we're rich. I know none of us want to admit that we are rich, but we have been deceived into thinking that we're poor, that it's the one percenters that are the only ones who are rich. We are incredibly rich. I've mentioned this before, but even if your income is at the poverty line in the United States, you are still in the top 5% of the richest in the world. Top 5%. And I would guess, I would suspect that most of us are above that poverty line. So maybe you can put yourself in the top 4, 3, or 2%. Right? We are rich. And so Paul says, command those who are rich in this present world, command us not to be arrogant, nor to put our hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, right? How certain do you feel about your investments in 2020, right? It is so uncertain. But to put their hope in God, who is not uncertain, put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. He is our provider. Verse 18, command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds and to be generous and willing to share In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. So Paul says, place your hope in God rather than in money. And when your hope is in God, it's going to show up in three ways. He says, you will first of all serve humbly. Paul tells us to do good, to be rich in good deeds. By serving, by doing good, we take the focus off of ourselves, off our own desires, and we seek to meet the needs of others. And as we do that, it slowly transforms us. Transforms us to be less selfish and to desire God more than money. Secondly, we serve humbly and we give sacrificially. Paul says we must be generous and willing to share. Did you know that the average American gives 2.1% of their income to some type of charitable organization. 2.1%. So that's an overall average. To to me, that's that's not all that surprising, right? But do you know how much the average Christian gives? Because this should be significantly different, right? The average Christian gives 2.4%. So Christians are only out giving the average by 0.3%. But, come on, there are a lot of people who claim to be Christians so how about evangelical Christians? Uh, unfortunately, we're, we're differentiating here. There shouldn't be a differentiation, but that's for another sermon. Evangelical Christians, meaning Bible-believing Christians, what about them? How are they giving? You know how much evangel- evangelicals give? A whopping 3%. 3%. We are never going to free ourselves from the love of money when we hang on to it for dear life. We are never going to learn to be content in God when we are hoarding our resources. Some of you may remember the name John Wesley. He was an Anglican minister in the 1700s, and he was a leader of a revival movement within the Church of England known as Methodism, uh, where the Methodist church stemmed from. So in 1731, John Wesley began to limit his expenses so that he could have have more money to give to the poor. And so when he decided to do this in, in year one, 
uh, he had an income of 30 pounds, uh, and his living expenses were 28 pounds. So he had two pounds to give away. The next year, his income doubled, but he still lived on 28 pounds, and so he gave away 32 pounds. Third year, his income jumped to 90 pounds. Again, he lived on 28, gave away 62 pounds. Fourth year, he made 120 pounds and gave 92 pounds to the poor. Wesley believed that with increasing income, the Christian's standard of giving should increase, not his standard of living. So he began this practice while he was at Oxford, but he continued it throughout his life. And so even when his, when his income rose to well over a thousand pounds, he lived simply and gave generously. One year his income was slightly over 1,400 pounds. He gave away all but 30. When he died in 1791, the only money mentioned in his will were the miscellaneous coins that were found in his pockets and his dresser drawers. That's all he had in his will. Most of the 30,000 other pounds that he had made in his lifetime, he had given away. Now, I know that's a little bit hard to relate to. We don't you know, use that type of money where we live today. So you put that in today, today's wages. And at one point, he was making over $160,000 a year. Yet he was living like he was making only $20,000. Why in the world would you live like that? You don't live it for this world. (laughs) You live like that because godliness with contentment is gain. Paul says it is great gain. People scoff at at this idea, but what if? What if God gives you more, not to increase your standard of living, but to increase your standard of giving? You want to be free from the love of money? Give sacrificially. And finally, he says, we we thrive eternally. Be rich in good works, so serve humbly. Be generous and willing to share, give sacrificially. And then Paul writes in verse 19, in this way, they lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. So don't let the love of money derail you from thriving eternally. You could have all the riches that this world could ever, ever offer and it would never, ever satisfy you. And it could unknowingly result in eternal torment. Now, I know what you're thinking. Okay, Steve, well, just try me. (laughs) Try me. Like, give me lots of money and I bet I'd be content. I bet I'd be satisfied, right? Paul's saying, no, you wouldn't. Not if you're putting your hope in it. There's more to life than just these few short years here on this earth. So give generously and lay up a treasure for yourself for all of eternity. And I love the last part. He says, so that you may take hold of the life that is truly life. Life is truly worth living. A life removed from the love of money. A life that humbly serves. A life that gives sacrificially is a life that is truly life. Because godliness with contentment It is great, great gain. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Um, But it's sometimes difficult to read when we make it personal. It's sometimes difficult to hear these words of how money can be so destructive. And so God, forgive us when we have put our hope in money. 
when we have loved money more than we have loved you, when we have placed our allegiance in getting more money and gaining more and more and more instead of pursuing more and more of you. God, forgive us when we have fallen into this temptation and into this trap of wanting more and newer and shinier and bigger and better when we ought to want more and more of you. God, teach us to be content. We live in a world that is so discontent. It is told that we deserve more. We ought to go after this and that. That we've earned it. That it's ours. When all the while, you are the one who richly provides everything for our enjoyment. We are just managers, just stewards of what you have given us. And we are not to use it for selfish gain for ourselves. We are not to pursue it and love it. And so God, help us to repent. Give us the strength to turn from the love of money, to flee from it, and to pursue you and to pursue righteousness and endurance and gentleness and love pursue Jesus. Thank you for his example of one who left the treasures and riches and glory of heaven and became nothing. A servant of all. One who hardly had anything to his name. Who relied on the kindness of others for shelter at times. God, we have been so richly blessed. We are the rich that are talked about in 1 Timothy. So help us to be rich in good deeds. Be generous and willing to share. May we store up treasures for ourselves in the coming age and not live for the trappings of today. God, help us to recognize the sin in our own lives. Not to point the finger and see it in others, but to first remove the speck in our, or the plank in our own eye before we take the speck out of our brother and sister's eyes. We, we need to examine our own lives and see where this is impacting us, where it could be destroying us and deceiving us and even derailing us. But above all, God, we want to find contentment in you. May our hope be in you. Teach us more and more to do that. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So this morning we want to give you an opportunity to respond. These, these things that we've been talking about the past three weeks have been pretty personal, haven't they? Some of you are like, yeah, I wish you'd stop. Yeah, I know. They're, they're tough. Talking about this heart and not being led by our heart or our emotions or our desires, but being led by, by God, by His Spirit. That's hard to do. We've been talking about the tongue our words can be destructive and have potential for evil. And we're going, man, I do that every day. I, I destroy with my words. You're getting personal here. But now I'm digging into the wallet, right? <laughs> getting really personal. How, how though, is, is this impacting the way you live? Is the love of money distracting you? Pulling you away from God? Or is it a tool that you are using to help draw others to him as well. 
And so if there's some repenting that needs to be done or if there's a decision you need to make about Jesus, we want to give you the opportunity to respond. I'm going to be up here to your right as we sing this last song. I'll have my mask on if you want to talk, if you need someone to pray with you. I'll be around after the service or if you'd like to talk to one of our staff or elders throughout the week, please don't hesitate to respond. And so if you have a decision, especially a decision to trust in Jesus, place your hope in him and follow through with baptism, don't, don't wait on that any longer. So again, if you have a decision to make, I'll be up here to you right as we sing this last song. We stand and sing.